Hello, and welcome to the University of California Press Podcast. My name is Chris Gondak, and today I'll be speaking with Judith Carney, the co-author, along with Richard Nicholas Razumov, of In the Shadow of Slavery, Africa's Botanical Legacy in the Atlantic World. Judith Carney is professor of geography at the University of California, Los Angeles. She's the author of the award-winning book, Black Rice, The African Origins of Rice Cultivation in the Americas. Judith Carney, thanks so much for taking time to talk to the University of California Press Podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. So now, how sophisticated was African agriculture by the time Europeans first started to arrive in Africa to set up the slave trade? Unlike Europe and Asia, Africans did not use draft animals such as oxen, water buffalo, to pull plows. They, Instead of using the plow agricultural method, they used one principally with handheld hoes. And even though Africans had domesticated cattle and iron making as fine as that in Europe by the time Europeans began enslaving Africans, the agricultural method they used was one agronomists now call no-till. It relies on a variety of hand-held hoes to prepare the soil for cultivation. And this method is today especially esteemed on the African savannas because it is considered the least environmentally destructive way to farm fragile soils. So at the time of the onset of the transatlantic slave trade, Africans had livestock whose manure fertilized the soil. They had domesticated cereals, tubers, these are root crops, legumes, uh, these are beans and peas, notably the black-eyed pea, uh, fruits, vegetables, oil-producing plants, and um, a number of tropical pasture grasses that support livestock economies um, throughout the tropical world. Also, in the millennium prior to the development of the transatlantic slave trade, Africa had been involved in plant exchanges with Asia. African millet and sorghum left the continent in these ancient plant exchanges across the Indian Ocean, and these cereals transform food production in semi-arid environments of India and Pakistan. Similarly, the banana and cooking banana, also known as the plantain, reached tropical Africa in the same um, period. And Africans contributed to varietal development of each of these Asian species. So Europeans first came to Africa and that's where they saw the banana along the West African coast long before Vasco da Gama reached Asian societies at the end of the 15th century. So this agricultural foundation in the wet and dry tropics, we argue in the book, uh, transferred to the Americas during the transatlantic slave trade by enslaved Africans who made important contributions to what our own native peoples had already done and the plants they domesticated. So now this subtitle of the book is Africa's Botanical Legacy in the Atlantic World, which kind of means at some point these plants have to get from Africa to the Atlantic world, the New World. Uh, was it a conscious decision by the planters to bring African foodstuffs initially to South America, which is the area your book begins at, talking about? Was it part of a plan, or were these foodstuffs being smuggled in from the slaves themselves? That's a very good question. I think we should start with the European captains of slave ships who left their homes with food staples vital for their crews and sometimes included additional items such as horse beans, dried uh, fava beans as they were, 
or salted fish for the slaves they would eventually board in Western Africa. However, the journals of slave voyages make quite clear that the bulk of the food supplies for captive Africans was purchased along the African coast. African-grown food surpluses were a vital component of the transatlantic slave trade, and the food staples sold to slave ships included New World plants, such as maize, or otherwise known as corn, and peanuts, which the Portuguese had introduced to West Africa in the early 16th century. But also important as the provisions for these slave ships um, were many foods domesticated in Africa, such as African rice, sorghum, millet, uh, black-eyed peas, and others. One of the interesting things that a review of the literature of these journals and uh, accounts by captains of slave ships reveals is that there was a widespread uh, perception that if slaves were fed the foods to which they were accustomed, the mortality rate would be lessened across the Atlantic voyage. Significantly, slave ships occasionally arrived in the New World with leftover provisions. These seeds and tubers remaining from some voyages gave enslaved Africans repeated opportunities to access food staples that had traditionally formed part of their diets. So these African food crops were actually novel to European plantation owners. In fact, we mention in the book many instances of slaveholders attributing specific crop introductions to slaves because they first discovered these novel plants in the food plots of their slaves. Many of these crops for which Europeans had no previous familiarity retain the African words for them in English today, such as yam, banana, beni, which is uh, for the African sesame, and callaloo for a tropical spinach. So what was the role of African women uh, in this botanical transfer? Again, the historical record reveals that women aboard slave ships were sometimes put to work in meal preparation. They were spatially separated from men on slave ships and held on the quarter deck within the part of the ship that was also the cooking area. And slave women, and these are few accounts that we even have that discuss this, but they, they do mention it enough to see there's a pattern that enslaved women were also often involved in milling unhusked grains for meal preparation. They removed the hulls with an African handheld, mortar, uh, handheld pestle and mortar. And in fact, one of the book's images shows a painting of women, enslaved women, milling grain on a Danish slave ship. Now, there are some legends among descendants of runaway slaves in northeastern South America that claim their tradition of rice growing began when an enslaved female ancestor grabbed grains of unhusked rice as she was left off the, led off the slave ship. She hid them in her hair. The precious grains, they say, escaped detection, and this is how they came to grow rice as their principal dietary staple. A similar story is told in the Guianas to, to one that is also found north and south of the Amazon River in Brazil. These are thousands of um, kilometers apart. 
And these are areas, in fact, where French botanists found African rice cultivated by rural peoples in the 1940s and 1950s. And secondly, we have documentation that captains of slave ships purchased African rice in both milled and unmilled forms. So the narrative of the African woman disembarking a slave, slave ship has some veracity for, um, because it mentions that she placed grains in her hair, but if these were unhusked grains that had not yet been milled, they could also serve as seed rice for reestablishing the crop in plantation societies. Not all slaves stayed on the plantations, however. Some were able to escape and then start their own camps and communities. Uh, for those slaves that were able to escape, first of all, how were they able to eat during the escape? And second, once they formed communities and kind of base camps, was the method of agriculture they used there similar to what they would have used had they stayed in Africa? Uh, to some extent, uh, they tried to imagine um, life on the run. They may have known where some Amerindian communities were or existing fugitive slave communities, but principally before they left, they had to imagine that the, the, before they could even meet other people who were fugitives in other hamlets or settlements, that they would have to have food with them. So they would have brought food stock with them, ideally, as part of running away. In fact, uh, a major way that uh, slaves were re-enslaved who were fugitives was sneaking back to get more food and being apprehended. So there would have been some awareness of, of what existed in terms of possibilities, but the essential and this is a major point of the book, is the critical way of looking at food in this entire complex that goes from Africa on slave ships across to the Americas and even into flight from plantation societies. Now, to the kinds of areas where they would grow food in more established maroon uh, settlements had to be hidden enough from European efforts to re-enslave them, militias and everything, that they were in pretty remote and inaccessible regions, the ones that were successful maroon communities. And in those areas, uh, they still would have had to hide some of their food field. And the ideal was to grow um, a number of the food staples that um, are of African origin, whose access they would have either had to get through plantation food plots of slaves or through trade. And so that was one way that they managed to get the, the food into those areas. But when we look at what is known about some of the maroon communities that survived, and many of them actually in the former Guianas, do grow rice as their food staple, we see that they tried to exert some preference for African dietary preferences. Um, this would have been especially acute because a lot of the people who fled were recently enslaved Africans, not, third, not always third, fourth, fifth generation New World Africans enslaved, but people who had known what freedom was and had tasted it in their youth. And so 
they are coming fresh from a memory of a food system from which they've been deracinated. So finally, what are some of the foods that if we went to North American grocery stores, we might be surprised to find out their origins are African? Coffee, the cola of Coca-Cola, pearl and finger millet, sorghum, many types. The type that's common in the Americas today is the sorghum used for cattle feed, but in West Africa, sorghum is still a very important food crop as it is in South Asia. You wouldn't find globarima rice except on some of the former rice plantations of South Carolina, which are starting to grow it as a heritage rice. Asian rice uh, is faster yielding and soon replaced it in many areas of the world. Yams, there are yams that are also New World and yams that are Asian, but there's a yellow yam, a guinea yam, that um, gave the word in English and a number of other colonial languages. Watermelon, possibly muskmelon, black-eyed peas called cow peas in Africa, okra, palm oil, tamarind, tamarind uh, and hibiscus. These are both very popular, refreshing drinks. Uh, hibiscus is sort of the tropical cranberry. They're both tropical drinks. But the tamarind, uh, people may not know, is used as a key ingredient of Worcestershire sauce. And hibiscus gives red zinger tea its color. Um, and you might not know that just animal domesticates uh, from Africa include the donkey and the guinea fowl, and a possible separate and independent domestication of cattle occurred in Africa, but we have less archaeological uh, work uh, from this area, but the dates are now uh, becoming almost as old as some of the Near East uh, dates. And Africans were also involved in breeding a uh, type of sheep, sheep uh, not from Africa, but in ancient times, a small woolless sheep that was adapted to the hot, uh, dry climate of the savanna, and it was um, grown for its meat, not its wool. And this is the ancestor of the heirloom sheep raised in Barbados, and now parts of the U.S. It's known as the black belly type. So basically, I can name a number of other plants, but they're less known. Um, this kind of gives us a sense of the assemblage of food crops um, and also the animal products that Africans contribute to um, developing and that the contributions of African to world food history are numerous and still yet to be broadly acknowledged. And that was the aim uh, of our intent in writing this book is to tell precisely that story. Judith A. Carney, the co-author, along with Richard Nicholas Rosimoff of In the Shadow of Slavery, Africa's Botanical Legacy in the Atlantic World. Thanks for talking to the University of California Press podcast today. You're welcome. Thank you. And that was Judith Carney, the co-author, along with Richard Rosimoff of In the Shadow of Slavery, Africa's Botanical Legacy in the Atlantic World. Don't forget to join the UC Press fan page on Facebook, to follow us on Twitter, where we are at UC Press, or to shop our selection of books at www.ucpress.edu. Thanks for listening. Copyright 2009, the University of California Press. All rights reserved.